My name's Daniel, by the way. One of the pastors and elders here at Aletheia Church. All right, I think we're good. Yeah, good to see each and every one of you kiddos. You can go with your teachers out the back. Um, yeah. So I show you that video uh, for a couple of reasons. One, to introduce our passage for you today, um, but also uh, just to share this series with you. This is from a scene out of the TV series called The Chosen. Uh, if you have not seen this, it's absolutely incredible. My family has been working through the first few seasons. I think there's three seasons up now. You can just go to the Chosen app and get it, download it to your phone, your computer, or I know it's available on Prime Video. That's where we watch. I've even been told it's available on Netflix. Absolutely incredible. Probably the best production I've ever seen uh, concerning the life of Jesus because it's not cheesy Christian media, right? Like it's just super well done. So if you haven't begun to watch that, I want to encourage that. But I also want to introduce the passage because it's not often that we get uh, kind of a live action telling to where we can really get a deeper, I think, meaning and uh, understanding of what that conversation might have been like between Jesus and Nicodemus. And though everything in there is not exactly according to Scripture, it really captures the heart of what took place on that night. But to make sure that we capture Scripture in its fullest, I want to begin by reading John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15 for us this morning. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Our passage today begins in the book of John for the very first time introducing to us the Pharisees. Now, if you've been in church for 
any point in time in your life, you have all, you've heard the Pharisees assuredly, and every time you've heard of them, you've, you've heard this bad connotation about the Pharisees because we see them often fighting with Jesus in Scripture. We see them and Jesus at odds with one another repeatedly. Now, I want to give you a little bit of the background of how these Pharisees actually came about. If you go all the way back to 600 years before Jesus, to the time of what we call the exile, you will know that the kingdom of Babylon eventually makes the the final overrun of the Jewish nation. Assyria had overrun Israel, then Babylon had overrun Assyria, now Babylon has taken on Judah, and they have completely dispersed all the people. This is called the dispersion or the diaspora, it's referred to sometimes. And so the people are scattered everywhere. No one is left in Jerusalem except a few poor people to take care of the land. This uh, exile begins in 605, and it's completed in 586 with the destruction of the temple. This once great temple that Solomon had built is completely flattened and leveled. Well, from 586 to 536, the people remain dispersed. But at this point, Persia has come onto the scene. It's overtaken Babylon, and it begins to send the people back to Jerusalem. They begin to rebuild the temple slowly but surely. And in 516 BC, the temple has now been restored. The exile was 70 years, just like God said it would be in the book of Jeremiah. Now, the people have experienced this uh, you know, slight spiritual restoration, and they've seen this temple rebuilt, and they're asking themselves, how do we continue? How, how do we not get exiled again? So they begin to look into the scriptures. They begin to look into what the prophets had said, and they realize three things. They realize that, one, there would be a spiritual restoration. Uh, the second thing they realized is that... Um, I totally lost my place. Uh, They realized there was going to be a spiritual restoration of Israel. Uh, The temple would be rebuilt, and eventually the Messiah would come. So there is this great expectation in Nicodemus' day that this Messiah would be here because the people had been regathered, and they had brought about this spiritual restoration. But how did they bring that about? Well, they got really serious about the law. They got really serious about taking these commandments, all that God had given them in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, what they would call the Torah. They said, we're going to take this really seriously because that's what we got in trouble to. That's why we got in trouble before, because we kept breaking the law. At least that's how they interpreted how they got in trouble, right? And so they took and they counted up 613 commandments inside of the law. And so they have the law, and then they put this fence around the law. And they called this the oral tradition. It, gets, it eventually gets written down. It's called the Mishnah in Nicodemus' day. But they had all these rules around the rules. So they had a fence here. They had another fence here. And those fences were the things that Jesus keeps getting on to the Pharisees about saying, you have put this yoke upon the people. You put this burden upon them. And you're not willing to lift a single finger to help. 
And what he's talking about is things like this. We know the commandment to obey the Sabbath, that you are to rest on the Sabbath. So they begin to try and interpret these things. Of, well, what does this look like to obey the Sabbath? They said, well, what if somebody has to like throw a piece of garbage away? Is that work on the Sabbath? Well, they finally decided, hey, look, if you throw something away and you have to lift your hand up above your shoulder to throw it away, that's work. But as long as you keep your hand below the shoulder, like sidearm, underhand, you're totally okay, that's not work. Well, then people ask questions like, well, how far can I walk? What constitutes work on the Sabbath? And they finally determined there was a certain number of steps that you could take. And if you went over that number of steps, you had broken the law of God. So what do you think the people are doing every Sabbath? Counting the number of steps, right? And so this just goes on and on and on and on and on until there's thousands of laws that the people are trying to keep up with to obey God, and there's this burden upon them. But what do you think happens to the people who re are really good at keeping this, these rules? They become in power and control. And when you become in power and control, you like to lord it over people and tell everybody how good you are at obeying the law. And this is what was happening. The Pharisees became this group who were ruling the people. The majority of people in Jesus' day at this time were Pharisees. In case you didn't know, most likely Jesus was a Pharisee because he would have been raised in that tradition. There were only two other options, and overwhelmingly, he would have been raised in that tradition. It's also probably why he fought with them the most, because who, who do you fight with the most? Family, those, those you know the most, those you know the best. And so Nicodemus is a Pharisee, but not only is he a Pharisee, he is a Pharisee of Pharisees. He is at the pinnacle of the entire Jewish society. He's part of the Sanhedrin, this group of 70 men plus the high priest, in case you ever needed to break a vote, that ruled over the nation of Israel. In the Sanhedrin were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Nicodemus was this guy. So he is rich. He is powerful. He is a scholar. He is the teacher of Israel. That's who Jesus is having this conversation with upon this rooftop. That's why this conversation is happening at night. It's because if the boys back on the Sanhedrin got word that Nicodemus was having this conversation with Jesus, Nicodemus would have been in a lot of trouble. It would have caused a big stir. So under the cover of night, Nicodemus requests this meeting with Jesus, and we see them having this conversation on the rooftop. And so he says, Jesus, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So even though we don't see a big list of miracles having taken place yet in the book of John, we know that Nicodemus had seen things with his own eyes. He had heard things from others about all of these miracles that Jesus is now doing. And Jesus says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, if you have been a part of Aletheia Church at any point in time, you know that any time I come to Truly, truly, I'm going to tell you why you should really pay attention. Because Jesus is telling you, you should really pay attention. In the Bible, anytime you see someone repeat themselves, this is a literary device to say, you need to really pay attention to what comes next. So when Jesus says, truly, truly, or if you're old school, verily, verily, right? 
then you know this is something you should pay attention to. And he says, Nicodemus, pay attention to this. You must be born again. And if not, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus has this great reaction. He is truly confused. He is truly confounded because he has heard these words spoken his whole life. Um, he's heard this language. And in this one moment, Jesus uses words in a context to which he does not understand being born again. It was like me a few years ago when I first started hearing people use the word sick. My whole life, it meant the flu, snotty nose, strep throat. You guys changed the whole thing, and now it means something good. Right? I, I don't understand this. I was confused by this. Don't even get me started on the word thirsty. Like, I really don't, I do not understand I do not want to know what part of speech this is. The only thing I know about that word is that it highly embarrasses my children when I use it toward their mother in our home. That's the only thing I know about that word. But they told me that I never use it correctly. All right? That's the moment Nicodemus is having on this rooftop. He's like, what are you talking about, Jesus? All right? Because he doesn't get it. And I don't know, honestly, if a lot of us really get it or could really explain it. Like right now, if one of your friends came up to you and said, hey, you Christians use this term born again. Explain it to me. Like, like give me the definition of this thing and tell me how this thing works. You might be as confused and confounded as Nicodemus was in this moment. So I'm going to attempt here for a few moments, one, to, to kind of give you the, the technical side of what it means to be born again, but then also kind of talk to you about being born again from the experiential side. So when we talk about being born again in the church, when Jesus is talking about this with Nicodemus on the rooftop, the, the, the term that we most often use today is regeneration. That's the theological term that you're going to find in theological textbooks. But uh, in common parlance, we say being born again. And so these, this, this what I've stolen right here is directly from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. If you're ever looking for a nice 1,300-page book to put on your bookshelf to make yourself seem smarter than everybody else, or you need some good reference material, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology is great. And he says this, regeneration is a secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us. Or uh, stated another way, being born again is a secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us. And there's three basic parts to understand about being born again or about regeneration. Number one is that regeneration is totally a work of God. If we look over, look back in John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, John in his gospel says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Or another place this is stated is in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Regeneration is totally a work 
of God. The second thing you should know is that the exact nature of regeneration is mysterious to us. That is why Jesus gives this example of the wind. And you have to think back in Nicodemus' day, the wind was truly a mystery. Like today, we can do all these you know, scientific explanations through meteorological terms, but they didn't have any of this, right? They woke up and they just they could feel the wind. They could sense the wind. They knew that the wind was moving, but they couldn't explain all of these weather, weather patterns. They, they couldn't tell you about El Nino and La Nina. Or they couldn't tell you any of that stuff. They just knew that the wind was there. And sometimes it was comforting. Sometimes it was hot. But they just knew that the wind existed. It was a complete mystery to them. And in the same way, regeneration or being born again is mysterious to us. But what you should also know is that genuine regeneration, genuinely being born again, must bring results to life. Grudem captures it very well uh, this way in his book when he says, You realize you are separated from God and spiritually dead. But immediately afterward, there was clearly new spiritual life within. The results can usually be seen at once. A heartfelt trusting in Christ for salvation. An assurance of sins forgiven. A desire to read the Bible and pray. A delight in worship. A desire for Christian fellowship. A sincere desire to be obedient to God's word and scripture. And a desire to tell others about Christ. If you are truly born again, you should see at least the seed of these things in your life. They, they may not have yet borne full fruit, but a person who is born again, as I read those, you should be able to identify with those. You should see the evidence of those things beginning to take root and to bear fruit in your life. Now, from that, as we think about that, as we try to explain this from an, an experiential moment of what's this like, if you've ever been to some kind of Christian conference or some place where people are told they get to tell their story about Jesus, we always go for the big, huge, dramatic story, right? Like I, I heard, I heard an incredible story this week about a a, a lady that I am now loosely associated with. My uh, my business partner, one of his life's passions to where he puts most of his profits and resources is towards the rescuing of women and children out of abuse situations, and especially those who have been trafficked. So this is a, an area that I'm now getting involved in with him. And there's a, a lady that uh, she's known as the trauma mama for us. She, she does all of our intake for abused women and children as they come in. And her story is absolutely incredible. For throughout her, her teenage years, uh, she was trafficked by her own parents. This went on for years and years and years. And you can only imagine what this does to a human being when you are trafficked and treated in this way to where she finds herself high, finds herself strung out, um, addicted to all kinds of substances, and one night laying uh, in a hospital bed nearing the point of death to where at some point she just finally says, God, I can't do this anymore. I'm done, and I need your help. And in that moment, the moment she prayed that, she was utterly and completely delivered. 
she literally pulls out all the tubes of her arm, gets out of the bed, and walks out of the hospital. Everything cleared out of her system, never the same ever again. And now she is totally on fire for Jesus, and there's no one better to, to witness to and to share life with people who have been abused and trafficked than this lady. Now, we love those stories, right? And those stories are awesome, and God still does those things, and we need to pray for God to deliver people who are in bondage over and over and over again. But that's the rare exception to being born again. My story is not like that, but yet I do have a powerful moment in my own life, right? I'm now 46 years old. At the age of 22, in my very last semester at, at Auburn, I was sitting at a four-way stop sign in a part of town I had never been in, and very, clear, very clearly out of the blue, God spoke to me. I wasn't looking, I wasn't asking, I wasn't seeking, but it was very clear that something that was not Daniel Espy's voice or Daniel Espy's voice in his head said, go to the church in front of you. And it was so clear and so convicting and so authoritative, I said, I need to go obey, I need to obey this voice. And so I went to church there. I had no idea that my best friend from high school that I'd only seen one time in five years was a part of that church. And within two months, God used uh, the, the rebridging of that friendship to, to lead me to himself, to where one day, just sitting in my car, I said, Jesus, if you're real and all this about you is true, I will do whatever you want me to do for the rest of my life. In that moment, moment, I was completely born again because everything, every hope that I had of being a golf course superintendent and having just worked for the PGA Tour and all those things that I had just done, it all faded away. And along the way, I went on to become a missionary in Africa. I went to seminary. I planted a church in Seattle, Washington. And now for the last five years, I've been here with you guys. It completely changed the direction of my life. Now, some of you are going, Daniel, I don't have a Heidi story. I don't even have a moment like yours in my life where I can tell you there was this how I used to walk, and now this is how I walk. Don't let that be unsettling for you. Because if you know that you were a follower of Jesus, what you should actually do is you should, you should actually go home and whoever raised you and has had you in church your entire life to where you've known nothing but loving Jesus you need to go thank them today. You need to go say, you need to tell them, thank you for introducing to me to Jesus my whole life, for keeping me in contact with Jesus. Because you may not have any moment in your life to where you go, that was it. That's when I was saved. All you know is I've just loved Jesus ever since I was a kid. I know at some point I prayed and I asked him into my heart or something along those lines, and I just know that I've always loved Jesus. Don't let anyone take that moment from you. Having the most boring testimony in the world is a great thing. It is the number one thing that I pray for my four children. I am like, Lord Jesus, let them have the most boring testimony you have ever given four people in the entire history of the world. That they were raised in the church. They were raised by mama and daddy who were missionaries at one point in time. By daddy who was a church planning pastor and on staff and, and a pastor at Aletheia Church. And they just love Jesus and they have great spouses and they have great kids. Because that prayer along with the prayer of the, God, my prayer for the SB generations and any who, anyone who would come from the SB generation forever and ever and ever, may they all be followers of Jesus. And now I'm going to tag on to it. And may they all have the most boring testimony possible, <laughs> right? 
I want the whole line to be that way. But what we know is whether it's the trauma mama, whether it's me or whether it's you, if you have been born again, if you have been regenerated, then you will see evidence of what, what, what Gren Grudem said. You realized that you were separated from God and spiritually dead. But you know at some point in time, there was clearly new spiritual life in you. And you saw it because there was this heartfelt trusting in Christ for salvation because you knew that nothing else could save you. There was this assurance that your sins had been completely forgiven. There was a desire to read the Bible and pray. There was a delight in worship, a desire for Christian fellowship, and a sincere desire to be obedient to God's Word and Scripture. Not because you have to, but because you now get to, because you can see it leads to an incredible life. And there was a desire to tell others about Christ. Some of you may be sitting here today and you're going, I, I, I don't see that in my life. I do not know that I am born again. And I want to know how is it that I can be born again? Because Daniel, I'm, I'm a little bit nervous when you said regeneration is completely an act of God. And there's nothing that I can do to make myself be born again. And what you must do is you must obey the commandment, the exact same commandment that Jesus gave to Nicodemus on that rooftop that night. Because he says to Nicodemus, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And you got to understand, to me, th th this, is, this is one of the best like one-liners from Jesus that nobody really ever talks about because you probably don't even know this story and what was going on. Now, you may be familiar with the Exodus, that there was a time when the, the, the Jews were enslaved in the land of Egypt. And God had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And the people had this, this incredible habit of complaining all the time even though God had rescued them. And not only did they complain, they said, God, why can't you just let us go back to our slavery? Why can't you just let us go back to where all the food is wonderful and good? We got to eat all these different spices. There were these different aromas and different flavors. And in this moment in the wilderness of Paran, in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9, this is exactly what they're talking about. They're saying, God, you've provided for us all this food. We don't have to work for our food whatsoever, but you only provide the same food over and over and over again. And we're sick of you providing the same thing over and over. We, we want something else. And God is done. He is like, I am not going to put up with this anymore. If you ever want to know how much God hates complaining, go to this passage. Give it to your children, all right? We'll just say it's been read a few times in my house. When Paul says in Philippians 2.14, do everything without arguing and complaining. Do everything without grumbling and murmuring. This is why he says this. 
Because God says, enough. And he sends fiery serpents into the people. Thousands of people die because God is so sick of their complaining. And the only rescue for them was for Moses to go and to put on a pole two fiery serpents. And anyone who would look at those fiery serpents would be healed and would be saved. And I really wish I had the time to explain all the irony that goes into this, right? That you have the fiery serpents upon the pole, Jesus replacing the serpent on the cross, right? So when Jesus is saying in the same way they had to look up at that pole, they had to visually look up to those serpents to be saved, he was now going to replace the serpents. He who knew no sin would become sin, right? I mean, I mean, this is, this is really deep and rich, but Kevin just didn't give me enough time to explain all this this morning, okay? So here we are. He's saying in the same way, you just have to look to me upon the cross for the forgiveness of sin. And so though being born again is completely a work of God. It begins with you recognizing and realizing that you are a sinner separated from God. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, you must realize this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, Paul here is writing to believers in the church in Ephesus. But for those who are not yet believers, you must realize that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You must realize that you have followed the course of this world. You have followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And this is where you lived. And you have been carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and you are by nature a child of wrath because you are at enmity with God, because you have sinned against God, and because you have rebelled against your Maker. But in light of all of that, God offers you forgiveness. He offers you salvation. He offers you new life. And His promise to anyone who will turn to Christ is this from Romans chapter 10, verses 9-13. through 13. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Because see, the fact is that unless God regenerates you and gives you the ability to look to Christ and to call out to Him, you never will. But yet, there is this thing that goes hand in hand where God is totally responsible, you are responsible as well, to where you must cry out and you must call out to God to save you. 
And what you may need this morning is first to pray for the realization that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Because that is where the journey begins. So if you don't feel that or recognize that or realize that, your first prayer this morning needs to be for God to show you just how separated you are from Him, to show you you are dead. Because, I mean, if you just think about it, the Bible uses this language, right? Like dead things don't move. They are dead, right? I don't care how many times you kick a dead body. It ain't doing nothing. I don't care how much you talk to a dead body. It's not doing anything. What it needs is new life. And what you need more than anything else is for God to bring new life into you. And lastly, we must address this section of Scripture where Jesus talks about the water and the Spirit. Because he says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water in the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh and flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. If you ever want to go down the rabbit hole of this verse... And all the things people think this possibly means, you could spend your entire four or five year education here at Florida doing just that. Many people believe that water baptism becomes a necessary requirement for one to enter into the kingdom of God. They, they think that is what Jesus is saying right here. There are denominations around the world that teach this. There are cults around the world that teach this. There's a very prominent cult here on the University of Florida campus that parades itself as a church that teaches this. That is not what is being talked about in this verse. Water baptism is not a necessary requirement. It does not seal you into the family of God. If you were baptized as a child, your baptism as a child did not save you. Your faith in Jesus is what saves you. Being born again through a work of the Spirit in your life, that is what saves you. So what is Jesus talking about? He's even talking about baptism in this. And I don't think so. We don't think so here at this church. If I'm going to pin it to one thing, to what I think Jesus is really drawing Nicodemus to, and where I think you see a very clear parallel in the Old Testament, it's in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through the first part of 29. Ezekiel is prophesying, and he says this. And just look at how close the connection is. You can see why Jesus is connecting what he's saying to Nicodemus to this passage. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 
And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people. And I will be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. See, water was used to clean. And so what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is that in order to be born again, you must be cleansed from all your sin. And you must also receive the Holy Spirit. He must dwell inside of you. And so it is when we who believe that Jesus is the Christ, when we look to Jesus upon that cross and we trust in Him for the remission of our sins, for all of our sins to be wiped away, He cleanses us with water. He cleanses us from our sins. Our sins are washed away. And at the same time, we are born again to new life. We become new creations. If you want to experience new life, you must look to Jesus You must cry out to Jesus. You must call out to Jesus and ask Him to give you His Holy Spirit. You must cry out to God and ask to be reborn. In thinking about this story, have you ever spent any time thinking about what happened to Nicodemus? Have you ever wondered what what happened to Nicodemus after this conversation on the rooftop with Jesus? If we look in Scripture, we can see in John chapter 7, there's a point where Jesus is out doing some public ministry, and Nicodemus comes alongside to defend Jesus. Like, hold on, let's, let's hear him out. And then in John chapter 19 at the cross, after Jesus has died and his body has been taken down off the cross, we are told that Nicodemus brings a vast wealth of spices and ointments for the burial of Jesus. But we're not told more than that in Scripture. However, church tradition has a lot to tell us about what happened with Nicodemus Outside of the Bible, church tradition tells us that Nicodemus gave a defense of Jesus at his trial before Pilate. When Jesus was standing there being accused, Nicodemus was actually there defending him. Tradition says that Nicodemus was baptized by Peter and John. Tradition says that his confession of the Lord Jesus as Savior led him to be deprived of his role as a Pharisee. He was excommunicated and he was dismissed and banished from Jerusalem by hostile Jews. Tradition says that his family was reduced to utter poverty. Photios, centuries later, refers to an ancient document that records that Nicodemus was martyred for his devotion to Christ by being beaten to death by a mob. That is what tradition tells us happened to Nicodemus. And though 
we don't know if that's exactly what happened. And though we don't know exactly what Nicodemus's born again moment uh, would have looked like, the chosen does a really good job of capturing what might have taken place on that rooftop that night. So turn your eyes once again uh, up to the screen behind me. 